listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, episode 198. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with performance psychologist and Ironman athlete Adelaide Goodeve to discuss overcoming adversity, reprogramming the mind, and leadership. Goodeve talks about her recovery from chronic fatigue syndrome and how that journey now inspires her mission to help people transform into champions by tapping into their superpowers. If you're ready to get inspired by her amazing story and becoming your version of a champion, then this is a must-listen episode. Are you ready to raise your game? 2021 is the year to increase your performance on and off the field. The Athlete's Edge Journal was designed to cultivate self-confidence and mental resilience through the power of sports psychology. Whether you are a professional athlete, a former college athlete, or have aspirations of greatness in the future, this journal is for you. Visit winthementalgame.com and use the promo code GRANTPAR20 to receive a 20% discount at checkout. Act now to take your mental game to the next level. What if you could rapidly accelerate your team's performance and skill acquisition just minutes before practice or game? NeuroTrainer triggers high-performance states with virtual reality brain training that can be deployed in the gym or at home. In just eight minutes, your team will be more focused and ready for whatever you or the game throws at them. Visit NeuroTrainer.com to schedule your demo and get your team locked in. Hey, Adelaide, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I I know it's been a few months since we initially talked, so I've been really waiting for this moment to get you on the show and to talk about overcoming adversity, which you know how to do that, Uh, reprogramming the mind and leadership. So there's a lot of cool things we're going to be covering today, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Me too. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, My favorite topic is mental toughness. You and I teach people and coach people how to be mentally tough in in many different ways and in different contexts. But I know you have gone through tons of situations where you had to be mentally tough. So when you think about mental toughness, what does it mean to you? For me, being mentally tough boils down to quite simply showing up and responding in the best way possible for you at that time. Cool. And Share a specific time where you had to be like the most either relevant or maybe the most monumental moment where you had to like dig in your heels and show up in the moment. (laughs) The moment I'm going through car troubles, I think it's broken down six times in less than three months. I've been owning it. So that's been super fun. Um, I suspect the most challenging recently, um, which has been, I've been saying to people, it's been surprising how challenging it's been. And that's um, so for, it's quite an unusual subject. Um, so for 10 years, I've been wanting a breast reduction. I do a lot of endurance sport. I like going to the gym and my bra size, which was 28E, which I'm not sure as any Americans will really understand, but it's when you have a very narrow back and a very large chest size and I'm small to extra small. Um, and so finding bras or sports bras that provided the support I needed to excel in long distance triathlon and ski touring and even cross country skiing, even swimming 
Um, mm. It was very, it was just uncomfortable. Like nothing really ever did the job properly. You'd be having to wear two, three sports bras just to compete and just to do your sport, which to me is, um, is just fundamental. It's a thing that you should be able to do or even to wear clothes comfortably. So I finally pulled the trigger this uh, last year now, and I had a breast reduction in June. But the crazy thing is, is I discussed it with the surgeon, brilliant surgeon, but I came out exactly the same size. I had a breast lift essentially, which isn't what we discussed at all. Uh, And it was a fascinating experience because you kind of, you go in, everyone's confirmed that you have multiple appointments before and it had been confirmed. I wanted to be as small as possible. I wanted um, a chest size that matched the rest of my body and that enabled me to do the sports I loved. And then coming out and knowing um, I was very lucky the first time around, I barely noticed I had an operation. I was, I shouldn't have been, but I was like mountain biking by day seven um, to cope with the emotion that, and the realization that, you know, I'm exactly the same. And it had gone through a lot of planning and it disrupts your life because you're really not meant to do any kind of sport for at least six weeks. And even then you're getting in very slowly. And I'm someone who is active every day, whether it's going hard at the gym or whether it's, you know, cycling London to Amsterdam, doing long cycle rides, going for runs, all of those kind of things. And I'd signed up for an extreme triathlon as well. And suddenly you know, you can't do any of those things. And not only could I not do any of those things, it was for literally for no point. And that was really mentally, that's probably one of the challenging things to go through, even more so in a way than the severe chronic fatigue syndrome, just because everything had been confirmed and you've planned it really well. And then you're like, I'm going to have to go through all of this again. And what made it even more difficult is I wasn't allowed to talk to the surgeon for um, six weeks because he wanted the swelling and things to go down, but you're never going to go down, you know, more than one to two cup sizes. And I was way bigger than what I wanted to be still. Um, so that mentally was a whole emotional roller coaster because every time you look in the mirror and when you have a shower, when you put on the clothes, when you're still wearing the same, um, items or intimate items, you know, it triggers that, this, this didn't work. Now I've got to wait six months to do it again. Um, and I did do it again. I did it on the 20th of December and I've now got my dream boobs, which is amazing. Um, but the recovery has been completely different. I did have a complication in the second surgery. So I went under twice, um, and they removed some fluid and then, and then it's been a lot longer and a lot more painful. And I was in bed for the majority of the last month and a half. And kind of just starting to do downhill skiing. So I'm thinking that's more like, you know, a leg sport, but I have bruised myself. And luckily that it's now got warm and it's melting. Um, well, not lucky, but um, but my FOMO, it's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone's like, oh, the weather's a bit rubbish now. And I'm like, oh, it is. What a shame. You can't go skiing. Because otherwise all your friends are posting and sending you like these amazing pictures. And you're like, I won't be able to do that for at least another month, maybe even more. Um, so that's been, that was the initial surgery was really challenging to go through. And then knowing you have to go through it again and having no emotional support from the surgeon. And on top of that, I went to see another surgeon and both of them said the same thing. Both uh, one was a man, one was a woman. And this is what fascinated me the most. And this is when you do have to dig your heels in and really know what is your reality, because I had labels pushed onto me such as body dysmorphia. 
um, or, um, oh, you want a mastectomy, um, or you're masculinizing your body. And I was like, these are fascinating labels because if you weren't someone who understood what they can do to who you are and how they can change your thoughts, your habits, your identity, and how they can actually ruin your life as well. If you take on like, oh, I'm masculinizing my body or, oh, I have body dysmorphia, that can really muck things up for you. And I knew I didn't have any of those things. And what a silly thing to say is if having small breasts mean you're a masculinized woman, because that's like a lot of the female population is now masculinized and isn't sexy or isn't feminine because of what someone, what plastic surgeons define as breast sizes. So that was really interesting journey for me. And I lent heavily on my coach to go through this myself, because sometimes you just need outside support who is unbiased to guide you and also just be like you know what you've got this you can you can do this and you're doing the right things and just practice that self-care because um otherwise I was getting that typical British response of British like stiff upper lip of oh you're making such a big deal out of nothing right and for me it's like I just had an operation to alter my body that didn't go to plan and now I can't even discuss the next step to the surgeon because he refuses to talk to me and having that kind of support around you was very difficult as well. So you really had to rely on yourself. Um, and I just held the vision of what I wanted. And I think that's a lot when it comes down to mental toughness, you have to hold a very strong vision of what is the outcome and the goal you want and to hold it and just steadfastly move in that direction mm-hmm. um, in the best way possible and the best you can. And sometimes that looks emotional and it looks like you're crying um, and sometimes it looks like you're doing fine it just depends on what is right for you at the time because I think a lot of people think to be mentally tough you have to always be positive and you have to always be moving in the right direction and constantly moving and doing right. whereas actually sometimes being mentally tough is crying and is practicing self-care and is actually slowing down and stopping to be present um, and you know being a bit messy as well. Big time. And that's one of the words that I've been focusing on a lot is, is being right. And, and I'm sure you and I have heard this a lot, but you know, we're not human doings or human beings. And, and a lot of times we, you know, as humans, we get really caught into the doing piece and being sometimes we have to downshift into a certain being for us to be mentally tough, mentally tough. can look, it has thousands of different kinds of faces. It's not just mm-hmm. one thing that you do to be mentally tough. And as I hear your story, I'm I'm really curious to to hear how your inner dialogue was, and and ensure sh- how important self talk is. Because when you're going through all the emotional stuff personally, then you have external perceptions and cultural cultural stuff that you're hearing mm-hmm. from a British standpoint, right? And you're being stationary i have found when you're stationary and you're going through a lot of shit the brain likes to to break dance a little bit so what was going what was that inner dialogue what was it like the last few months and um and how important it is to to have healthy self-talk during these type of adversities so it's really funny you mentioned being stationary and that's why i went mountain biking on day seven of the first surgery And it's not advised at all. And I don't advise anyone else to do it. But 
movement for me is how I process and deal with the mental side of things. Being especially being outside in nature, not like at the gym, um, I get mental benefits from it. But being outside in nature, that's where my true processing and healing and recovery happens. Mm. Um, and so that's why I was mountain biking by day seven, because I was like, I can't lie in bed with this result and just sit and wallow and be stuck. I was like, I have to move. I have to be outside. And being able to get the emotions to move through my body, through the movement, enabled me to process it as well. So when I went mountain biking on day seven, could have even been day six, it didn't, it wasn't like I would usually go mountain biking. I think I cycled 20 minutes. And at one point I had to stop for breath because of the general anesthetic kind of um, leftovers. And I just got to the hill, like this favorite viewpoint I have in the UK. And I just started crying. And it's just what I needed at the time, just to move, get out, experience nature, experience that healing and see a different perspective as well. Because sometimes when we're stuck inside, especially, we have a very kind of closed um, perspective. But when we're suddenly opened up to nature and to these huge vistas, for me, it just opens up everything as well. The self-talk, so language is the most important thing I teach because the words we use affect the way our brain is wired, which creates physical and mental results. Um, It's either going to work for us or it's going to work against us. And whenever I have clients coming to me, whether it's one-to-one or whether they're going through my flagship program, language is the first thing we look at because it creates the quickest transformations and sometimes the biggest way. So I've had clients be like, oh my God, just by changing my self-talk, I've just broken through a PB by like, sometimes it's 30 seconds of it swimming. Sometimes it can be 10 minutes. And so for me, language is really, really important. And I'm very aware of my self-talk and sometimes, well, more often than not, I'm able to change my self-talk. And then other times I, you know what, um, like for example, with the car stuff, my car's broken down five or six times in less than three months of owning the car. And then on Friday, it was in the workshop. It got fixed. Monday, I blew a tire. Literally in 30 seconds, my entire tire went flat. And I know nothing about cars. So luckily I rang a friend and they came to help. But I was just like, are you, are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> are you being serious now, universe? Like, this is like the freakiest thing to happen. Um, like on the car, probably the third freakiest thing to happen. And it's it's so easy to get stuck in negativity and to do and to think things that are unhelpful. But for me, it's just like, how can I influence this situation? And that's what I'm always asking myself. How can I influence this in a better way? So I'm thinking this and it sucks. And I feel like, why does this keep happening? But that's not helping. So what, what can I do that will help? And maybe it's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just going to chill and watch Netflix or I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go have a hot chocolate at the cafe. Um, I'm going to ring a friend or talk to a friend. Actually, I'm going to nap and sleep. And again, it's that being thing. Sometimes when we, we, sometimes we need to take aligned action. So for example, today I'm writing a very long email about why it's not my fault this stuff is happening and then why it is their fault. Um, but I'm balancing that out again with self-care. Right. Um, and so the language is always guiding me to choosing the best response. And sometimes the response isn't going to be your absolute best, but at that moment in that time, it is the best you can do. And you can reflect later and be like, actually, did I respond in the best way possible? No. Well, next time, how can I do it better? 
And this is my second time buying a car in Norway. This is actually not the worst I've ever experienced of buying a car in Norway. Um, we're getting we're getting close. That's not the worst experience I've had. Um, I did learn from the first one. So now I know more about my rights. I know about my standards. And it's all about being, for me right now, it's about being a peaceful warrior. So how can I stand up for myself, but in a way that's enjoyable and peaceful to me? And because otherwise it's very easy to get angry and to let these things derail your days and your weeks. But actually you have influence always over how you respond to something. And it's using your language as best you can to step into that. And it's always using performance and life enhancing words. So instead of being like, oh, no, they're making me stressed and they're making me angry. It's actually I am doing anger because we're active in the process of emotion. So I'm doing this response what can I do that's more helpful? And when we say, well, actually I'm a peaceful warrior, I'm setting up for myself in an enjoyable way, or that's how I want to be. You know, your words are activating the neuropathway for that response. So when we say I'm angry or they're making me angry, we're activating the physical response as well for anger. Whereas we want to be more in elevated emotions that are going to help us, whether it's peace, gratitude, joy, because you can always find something we're grateful for, even in the shittiest moments. Um, I've got amazing friends and the the garage that is seeing my car at the moment is being wonderful. Wow. It's, you know, what I love is grace when, when you have to, you know, when you brought up the peaceful warrior, it's yeah. about um, showing up with grace. And, yeah. and typically when I am, when I'm tapping into that frequency, I'm so I'm being it's really present, but it's, it's just, there's a force field around me when I know I'm just kind of, I'm gliding through this shit. Right. And when you started talking about how many times your car has broken down and you're just being tested, being tested, being tested, being tested. And that was kind of my year last year. And I just kept on telling myself, you know, you're built for this. Like, yep. you're not an eight year old dealing with it. You're you're 49 years old. You're built for this. Just keep your edge is not to give up. That's my edge. And I'm just going to keep on getting up, keep on showing up as we were talking earlier. Yeah. Um, and the language piece, what I love about language for me, it activates energy. So if you use the right words, it can not only activate it, but then it leads you into, into a direction where it's a, you're trusting the energy and, the, and then the words and you're moving in the direction that you should be because of the language. So yep. I love it. I love I love hearing that. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And the language is always linked to the feelings that you're creating. And I was listening to a Joe Dispenza book the other day, and he mentioned there was a research center that looks at heart math, which is how your heart rate variability changes according to the feelings that you're doing. So for anger, it's changing. But when you're in an elevated emotion, such as joy and gratitude, then your heart is reflecting that. And I was like, that is really beautiful because you want your body to be reflecting the feelings you want to feel. And as you said, each word is and the language we use represents the frequency and energy we want to be holding and entering and then that in turn is represented in our physical body as well which then changes our reality just by being present in that incredible feeling that you want to be feeling for sure yeah it's 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 interesting the what we've detected with technology and and how much the power the power of the heart what it emanates i mean i think they They've they've actually uh, what do you call it? They 
they had their science proving that energy can actually emanate from the heart almost like 10 feet out you know it's like yeah. oh that's great <laughs> and if you're feeding the heart with words and the energy man it's just like that's why energy is contagious um yeah. so man we could talk about this for hours because I, I love i love energy um but here i, I do want to talk about because it gets really interesting with your story and thank you for sharing your mental toughness story um share with my listeners about your diagnosis of the of the chronic fatigue um because there's a lot of a lot of cool stuff in there that i want to start bringing it like because i'm sure there's a lot of athletes there's a lot of performers out there that um are dealing with it as well but mm. share with share with my listeners a little bit about your diagnosis and your story so when I was 21, so about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with severe chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. And that's when you feel a fatigue throughout, well, for days on end, months or years. Some people can have it for 10 or more years. I was lucky. I just had it for about three to four years. Um, and it's when the fatigue is deep in your bones. So it's not a fatigue when you've been hungover. Um, it's like a deeper fatigue than that. And no matter what you do, you're always tired. No matter how many hours you sleep, you rest, you're tired. Um, in this really strange and deep way. When I look back on that time, it's just kind of a bedridden blur of darkness and living life on the sidelines. So chronic fatigue affects people in different ways. For me, I also had hyper senses. So light such as what we're sitting in now would be way too bright. So I'd be sitting inside on winter days wearing sunglasses um, or certain fabrics would just be painful to my skin or even noise, just listening to people chatting or Netflix would sometimes be quite painful. So it really can confine you to a very dark and quiet bedroom at your, well, at my absolute worst. That's where I, that was like the, the ultimate deepest pit was, was just being in this darkened room. Now, traditionally, and it's, I think it's starting to slightly change now, especially since long-term COVID, which is an unfortunate reason to create a positive change in the treatment of a condition such as ME. Um, but at the time I was diagnosed, there was no official cure and there still really isn't. And I was told, yes, you have severe chronic fatigue syndrome. It's going to get worse. Best of luck. And I was 21. I was like, wait, <laughs> like wow. I'm not going to be like this into my eighties. Are you freaking kidding me? I was like, this is crazy. I am. I want to go on adventures. I want to do amazing and crazy things and see nature and immerse myself in all of the wonder and the, the mystic of the world. Yeah. So I started to delve into alternative methods. You name it. I tried it. Nutrition, um, acupuncture, reflexology, craniopathy, um, everything, everything that I thought might give me a chance. I did it. And you would sometimes get a little bit of a remission. Maybe instead of being at like 20% health, you might be at 60% health for maybe three or four weeks. And then I would just crash. Um, and there were very other, like it created other issues in my body as well, which was challenging to deal with. Um, and then it was really weird within one week towards the end, um, three or four people came to me and they're like, Hey, have you, have you tried the lightning process? And I said, no, what is it? And it's a three-day brain training seminar, in which they teach you how to spot when you're going into the pit. So when you're doing chronic fatigue syndrome and how to change that so you can live the life you love. And it's all really grounded and based in neuroscience. Wow. 
I'm amazed we are not taught how the brain can change, grow and develop as a result of how we use it. And that's the neuroplasticity of the brain. And even I'm doing a master's right now, and it's fascinating because even in traditional psychology, they're still not understanding how quickly the brain can change and create a transformation within your mind and your body. So within three days, I'd fully recovered from severe chronic fatigue syndrome because I was very able to quickly change the the neuropathways which were stuck on on. So severe chronic fatigue syndrome was just stuck. It was a broken record in my head. You know, picking up a toothbrush, oh, I'm so tired. Walking down the stairs, oh, I am so tired. And it was a broken record as unconsciously by accident. So there is no judgment, there is no blame, no one is at fault. You just get stuck by accident in this space. And the brain can't tell the difference between what's real and what's imaginary. And you can accelerate that process using, in this case, the tools of neurolinguistic programming, hypnosis, which is just changing state and life coaching. And so you're able to really accelerate that process of neuroplasticity to get the result you want. And because there is nothing really physically wrong with, well, wrong with my body. So with chronic fatigue, it was just got stuck doing tiredness. Um, I was able to create change very quickly. And what was fascinating is I grew up with um, bladder issues and gut issues. Mm. And that also went overnight. And I'd been on antibiotics on and off my entire life up until that point. And now I've been on them once in 10, 12 years. So even though there was maybe um, scarring on the kidney, I was able, or the brain was able to override the reaction that it had been creating for so long because it had just got stuck doing the same thing again and again. And that experience was mind-blowing for me. It was crazy for my parents who were like, this girl couldn't walk and now she's joining us on a 10-mile walk a week later. Wow. And that's what I love to teach and what I love to share with people is we don't realize how powerful the brain is and especially with athletes and because sometimes what we're told is it can take a long time to create change in our confidence to create change in our physical performance and it could be hard and even with habits I mean it takes 30 days or 40 days and you've got it's going to be really difficult but you can do it you just persevere but if you can get the brain to work for you and not against you I've seen crazy changes in my life but also my client's life by just them deciding to understand, this is how I weaken a neuropathway that is getting a result I don't want anymore. And this is how I can strengthen and activate a life and performance enhancing neuropathway. And this is how I can make it stick and then never really think about having to do it again because the wow. brain is like a muscle. And that's how I teach my clients how to train it. When you think about these neuropathways, um, for the most part, belief systems they've you know they've been grooving in in our brains for years decades how long does it take to to cut them delete them reroute them how long does it take like you said you you hear this like it's going to take time it's going to take training you know can it happen overnight can it happen within a certain amount of hours, like how long does it take to kind of re redirect those their neuropathways or create new ones? 
to create new neuron pathways takes less than seconds. So it's a bit like when um, when one of my favorite kind of warm-ups to start with um, in Britain, I'm not sure how your postcodes work in the UK, but in Britain, um, we have different postcodes and they are six, six letters and numbers. And if you ask someone, how do you pronounce your, like, what is your, can you recite your postcode forward? And they go, that's so easy. Of course I can do it. Right. And then if you go, well, can you recite it backwards and you can't write it down? And suddenly they're now having to think in, the, in that process because they've never done it before. They're creating a new neuropathway. Ah, and then you go, OK, great. Can you now recite your postcode backwards, say eight to ten times and let me know what that's like? Because when you do it once for the first time, it's quite clunky. It's difficult and it takes you a long time. That's because it's a new neuropathway. But once you've recited it backwards eight to 10 times, it becomes a lot smoother, easier, and faster to do. And that's how we can create new neuropathways. Now, going to beliefs, for some people, and I've had some amazing clients transform beliefs they've had since childhood in less than an hour um, through a guided guided coaching journey. For some people, beliefs can be a bit stickier and it might take maybe one to two sessions. So maybe it could take up to two hours. Got it. Um, but you're once you're able to tap into that process of accelerating neuroplasticity, you, know, you suddenly realize that actually you're, you're a limitless being and you're able to change the blueprint you've been operating from very quickly. Um, but the brain is a muscle. You do have to train it. Now, because it doesn't understand what's the difference between what's real and what's imaginary, when we accelerate that process of the brain's ability to rewire, we want to trick it into thinking it's been this way for years and years and years. And we are able to create memories Mm -hmm. through a very deep form of visualization. Now, what happens is if that person comes up against a different situation and they revert back to an an old way of being, which doesn't often happen, but it can, then that is when we need to look at, okay, let's re-go back, let's update the belief, because maybe we installed not the most robust one for you, or maybe it's an identity problem, because we have different levels of change. So when we're trying to change an action or a habit, but we've not changed a belief. So you see this a lot in the fitness transformation programs, where people come in, they want to diet, they want to lose weight and they find it really tricky. And it's usually because their belief is I can't do this. Like it's not going to work. It won't last for me. And so you're kind of on this uphill battle because that belief is overriding every habit change that you're trying to do. So then you can change the belief and then it's kind of a domino effect downwards. So your thoughts change, your feelings change, your habits change. It's now a lot easier and more natural for you to continue on your, um, your trans, your physical transformation. Right. Now, if your identity is stuck with being, um, you know, I'm not an athletic person. Like I've, especially for those who've been overweight for the majority of their life, for them, they're just like, I'm just a big person. Mm. And so if that's your identity that then has a knock on effect and you can't create change without changing who I am. And it's been quite fascinating because sometimes it can take a long time to get comfortable with changing an identity. And I had some one-to-one clients um, beginning of last year 
And they both had some very extreme endurance races. One was to kayak down the river Yukon, um, which is a four to five day multi-day event. And the majority of it, you are there on your own. And if anything goes wrong, you're in a very precarious situation. So it's high pressure, long time sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And for her, she's like, I'm not an athletic person. And so for her, when we were doing some of this work, it just, some of it just wasn't clicking because we we're having a block with the identity. But once I was like, well, you don't like, what does being an athlete mean to you? And she's like, well, it's like, especially in, in endurance. And she was all doing ultras as well. She's like, well, you're skinny, you're this, you're that. And I was like, and that wasn't how she saw herself. Got it. She's like, well, you don't have to be that version of an athlete. What version of an athlete do you want to be? And she's like, well, I would like to be an adventure endurance athlete. And it was really interesting because my other client wanted to do the same thing. And it clicked for them about a month before their race and suddenly everything changed for them. Wow. So we had created transformation in so many different areas of their life. It wasn't until the identity changed that it just took all things to the next level. And we can sometimes, we can see it in, in friends, in family, in colleagues, where their language, you can kind of be your own detective. And they're saying things like, um, even I said a reason like, oh, this always happens to me. I am so unlucky with cars. And you know, it almost becomes a thing. You're looking for the next thing to go wrong. Because right. like, well, do you want to be attached to that belief and that identity? And yeah. then it's just starting to change it. And it's being your own detective and figuring out what is limiting me here and living a life that I am deeply in love with. And once we start to change that belief and change that identity, everything else almost seamlessly falls into place. You know, what's interesting is um, when you think about transformation, it can't happen without change. No. Yeah. You have to change something to transform whatever it is. And so I I love, I love everything you're saying. Um, I do want to go back to when you got diagnosed because whenever we hear feedback negative feedback lifelong could possibly change your life you know diagnosis um obviously in that moment you you have you can react um and i definitely reacted back in the day and now i'm choosing a different way to live to respond versus reacting and um and that reaction really stuck with me for a long time and it, and it became a, a shitty belief system but with my hip I had two hip replacements on my, on one hip. And the doctor told me like, you've got to be okay with being handicapped for the rest of your life. And you probably won't walk right or straight or normal. You got to be okay with that. And I was like, I didn't sign up for this shit. Like I just, I just wanted a hip replacement, you know? Uh, Cause the first one didn't go so well. So when they told you that you had this, the syndrome and that it's going to get worse and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. What did that do to you in the moment? How, how did it shape your thoughts? Mm. I find this such an interesting question because I find doctors to be some of the worst when it comes to language. Um, And we we currently have a very sick aunt and the things that doctors have told her, in my opinion, have hindered her recovery and hindered her health. Because the placebo is so important. And I'll come to how I felt in just a moment. But the placebo, doctors know and scientists know that the brain, what our assumptions are or beliefs are, affect our physical recovery. And that's why drugs go through 
blind tests or double blind tests even, because they have to eliminate what is the brain influencing in the kind of response to the drug and what is actually the drug doing. And there are so many um, different studies that go back to that, which are showing like, you know, um, in chemotherapy, those who thought they were getting chemo, but had the placebo still lost their hair. And it's like, if the brain can do that, that's insane. There was another study years and years ago, which just always stood out to me, which was um, they did it with some Chinese school children. And on the left hand, they rubbed them with oak, but told them it was poison ivy. And on the right hand side, they rubbed them with poison ivy, but told them it was oak. And 90% had the reaction to the oak, which they thought was poison ivy. And so when we think that that's how powerful the brain is, and yet we're having doctors, instead of telling us like, actually you have a 10% chance to live, it's like you have a 90% chance that you probably, this won't, you're not going to recover. You could die. And it's like, why not? Like, even when they said to me, like, hey, like it's probably going to get worse and it will be for the rest of your life. Why not say instead, like, look, you know, 10% recover from this in a wonderful way and live, go on to live their life. Because then it gives you hope and it gives your brain a chance to help you recover, again, to work for you mm. instead of against you. And I'd pinned all my hopes on this doctor because he was London's top doctor for chronic fatigue syndrome. And I thought he would have the answer. And I went in, I remember coming out just being absolutely disappointed, like, damn it, he doesn't have the answer. And they did give me cognitive behavioral therapy. They're like, you could do that, but it's not really going to work. Like, it doesn't make much of a difference. I was like, well, great. Well, I'll see what it's like. And, right. and also the, they're like, you can hang out with other people who, was, who had the same thing you did. And I was like, well, that could be interesting to see what other people have tried. And I remember I did one session. And for those whose CBT works for, I am so happy for you. For me, I was just like, this is... It was for me, I thought it was a joke, to be honest, because you're going in, they're like, hey, you should give up caffeine because that can mess up your system. And then someone was like, oh, I'm addicted to Diet Coke. Do you think I should give that up? And it's like, have you not like, have you not changed your nutrition? Because we all know how much food right. impacts our body. Yeah. And she was like, oh, you should try movement because that will like help energize your body, help get things moving again. And again, I was like, and some people hadn't, they just laid in bed all day. And I was like, I understand, my mind was blown that people hadn't done whatever it took. And some of them had it for 10 years. And that was fascinating to me. But also I didn't want to be in that space or that energy of like, no, it's not going to work. I'll have this for the rest of my life. And the ME community is very steadfast in that reaction as well. So if you've done the lightning process, they're very against it. And for me, I'm like, why not just be pro everything? because one thing can help someone else. And you hear people being like, I had chronic fatigue syndrome for 10 years because that community told me that it was a waste of my time and that the guy was a scam. Even though you've had like 10,000 or more people probably by now go through it. So for me, when I came out of that doctors, I chose to believe that I could live my dream life still. It was just a case of finding out what that thing would click. Wow. So that's what I chose to believe. Yeah. Because there was no way I was going to be stuck to a bed for the next 60 years. It's like not life. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I, um, when I, when I heard my, when I heard those words from my doctor, it was, I resisted it. And then my father was like, no, you are not handicapped. Like you're not. Mm-hmm. And then, then it went another year. And that's when I was like, okay, it's it's getting worse. 
And, and that's when I went, that's when I confirmed with myself, I'm like, okay, I am handicapped and I got to be okay with it. And that's when I got the placard. That's why I went back. My doctor said, Hey, I can get you a placard where you can, you can park your car anywhere you want at any time. And so that was the moment where I was like, I felt like I gave up my power, but I also like, but I also owned it. I'm like, I am what I am right now. And then from then probably for another seven to 10 years, I played a very small game because if I'm handicapped, I can't, I'm handicapped. Mm. I can't live my best life. I can't live my dreams. I wasn't the dude that I used to be. So um, when I got in going into my second surgery, my, my, my first doctor who probably was one of the only doctors that has a heart. When I mean that, I know they all do. But he like cried with me, you know, and he was a professional. Uh, he worked with a professional baseball team, the Oakland Athletics. Um, most doctors don't show their emotions. They're not psychologists. And so he actually put me in the right hands to with another doctor and um, and told me to do certain things mentally to get prepared for my second surgery. Mm -hmm. No pun intended, but to come out of it running. I want you to come running out of this thing. And uh, that was when I did the, there was seconds of waking up in that surgery room. I was like, I'm back. Like it was just because I oh, did. all awesome. Yeah. So, so that's why I wanted to know, because I, I know sometimes when we hear the stuff that we don't want to hear, we want to hear stuff that's going to potentially affect our lives for temporary or long-term um, our belief systems can get created or get supported. Those negative ones can come up and get even more support. Yeah, definitely. And for me, I just went to different professionals until I got the answer I wanted. And I do that now. Like I, I, um, I'm hypermobile, so I'm very bendy. Um, and my ligaments are very loose and I dislocated my shoulder when I was skiing, but like semi because I'm hypermobile. So it's very difficult to injure myself. And, um, the traditional physio was like, mm, you probably won't be able to do sport again. Or, and it was coming out when I was running and I was like, well, that's not an option. <laughs> so then again, I was going to different professionals until one of them said, oh, you just need neuromuscular act activities to train your body again, how to hold the shoulder. I was like, that totally makes sense. So then I started doing those exercises and now I'm doing well, everything I want to be doing again. So I think it's really important to because some people would like your doctor who had that amazing heart. And then he was like, you've got to come out running is learning who are the right people to listen to and to have in your, um, on your team or in your soul family, however, which way you want to phrase it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, there's, there, man, I got a slew of, of questions and what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring you back on the show because Considering your background as an endurance athlete and dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome, don't answer the question now, but I want to bring you back because I want to start really diving in. Can these two things coexist in sports? Can you have this syndrome and still compete at a high level in any sport? And, and how does one do that? How does one um, implement the right recovery to deal with, with this syndrome? So don't have to answer that, but what I want more more than anything uh, for my listeners and for you is to people to understand the coaching that you do. And I know that you do one-on-one -on -one team and you work with companies and you do leadership training. 
So share with my, my listeners um, what your coaching is all about. I teach you how to reprogram your mind to live your best life, to become the best version of you. And in my coaching, we have like the champion culture. So it's teaching you how to become the champion of your life. And being a champion simply means t- showing up as your best self and training your brain to support you in doing that. And the most exciting thing I'm about to release very soon, actually, is my ultimate champion journey. And it's been tested by over 500 different people um, from leaders and athletes all the way through to those just starting out on their journey. Wow. And we leave no stone unturned in 120 days. <laughs> um, but it's super fun. We cover everything, including beliefs. So how do you change your beliefs? How do you change your language? And then more easier topics looking at motivation and confidence um, and how to change feelings in our body as well. And so it's really there to give you all of the tools that I use to overcome chronic fatigue syndrome and also the tools which I then needed to sustain um, my best self. So we dive into that week by week. And there are workbooks and videos and audio and meditations and all that kind of stuff. So that's the thing I'm most excited about at the moment um, because it's going to be on a brand new platform and it's combining, I've just had a mastermind to go through it. And now we're combining everything I learned from them about what else they needed. Cause we started off at just a hundred days and it keeps being like, Hey, can we do this topic or dive into this? Right. <laughs> um, so, it's, so I'm, that's the thing I'm so excited about because I feel it's almost the one-stop shop to learning how to train your brain. That's beautiful. And then how do how do my listeners um, learn more about this coaching, the training, and just how they can just connect with you in general? So I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram, which is Adelaide Goodeve. And also my website is adelaidegoodeve.com. I live in Norway, so if you want to see what I get up to over here, Instagram is the best place. Awesome. Awesome. Now, one more question before we sign off here. And this is something um, I love. I love when it comes to reflection and how we learn and how we gain wisdom is based off our, our reflections. So when you reflect on your whole life, your whole career, all the adversities that you have gone through, what do you think you learned the most about yourself? So that's a really great question. I think what I learned the most about myself and what I am still learning and I've dived more into spirituality recently um, is that and it sounds so corny and it's all kind of you see um, everyone's sharing, but the fact that everyone, each one of us is a limitless being mm-hmm. and it's just knowing, well, how do we tap into that and how do we hold that space and hold that energy to help us and shine more light into the world and help us be our best version and live a life that we are in love with. And for me, a great deal of that does come down to the brain. I don't think in my, like half of my life, if I didn't know how the brain works, then it'd have been a lot more challenging. Um, But I'm starting to understand just how limitless and just how much potential we have. And we don't realize that we have. Right. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, Adelaide, uh, I could talk to you for hours. So thank you again for sharing your story and your journey um, and your coaching. I want everybody to check her out. Um, even though she's in Norway and this is for the people that are in, in the United States, you can still work with her. So reach out to her. And again, thank you so much and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun.